3: He didn't slam you, he didn't bump you, he didn't nudge you, he rubbed you, and rubbing son is racing.
1: Hey race fans, welcome to the Hoobazoo Radio Network and welcome to another edition of Drafting the Circuits. My oh my, we had a great weekend of racing to talk about. Uh, before we get into all that, I've got a I've got a huge panel assembled of guys with a lot of energy tonight, and we've all been laughing and giggling uh, before we got on the on the air so it's gonna be a great show tonight but first let me go around the table and introduce everybody in the studio tonight mr gray warren from richard Childress racing gray how are you
2: i'm doing great hope everyone else is
1: absolutely good to have you here gray also mr joey barnes who writes for indycar.com and also runs motorsports tribune joey barnes great to have you back on the show good to be here man absolutely yeah looking forward to talking about uh, all the indycar stuff from this weekend with you richard Uden. Back in the house again tonight. Richard, how are you?
4: I'm very good, thank you. Yourself?
1: Doing great, doing great. Seth Eggert, back in the house again. Seth, the NASCAR correspondent at Motorsports Tribune. How are you?
5: I'm doing good.
1: And we have the IndyCar correspondent for Motorsports Tribune, Christopher DeHarty. Last but not least, Chris, I know you worked all day today, but man, thanks for taking the time out to come back on with us. I always enjoy your insights. Chris, how are you tonight?
3: I'm doing very well. I'm so happy to be back. It's been way too long. It's been way too long.
1: Absolutely, yeah. Well, like I say, yeah, we've got a stellar panel tonight. But let's talk about uh, let's talk about this weekend in racing. We had uh, NASCAR was at Bristol, IndyCar was at Pocono. Uh, one big big thing I noticed from both races that it, that it looked at least from the the viewer. That the attendance was way up for both these events um, compared to last year. And that's a great sign. I mean, that's a great sign for for IndyCar. That's a great sign for Bristol, um, you know, and, and NASCAR. So it's great to see a lot of folks getting out to the racetrack this weekend, and they were treated to some pretty darn good races. But I want to lead off with the IndyCar race. Um, man did they ever get the setup right on the cars for for this particular track you know we've had we had phoenix that was questionable we had uh um indy that was great to nail the setup at indy that you know we had um iowa that was uh just uh hard to pass uh but but this race at Pocono, they've got the the correct combination of um you know, aero grip, mechanical grip, and just the right amount of downforce to make the racing quite exciting, frenetic, but yet not frightening <laughs> like we've seen um, at Texas or in uh, that last Fontana race a couple of years ago. So uh, uh, Will Power um, endured a tough day and took the win ahead of his Penske teammate, Joseph Newgarden. Uh, Newgarden extends his point lead over Scott Dixon. Um, Howard gains a couple points in the championship. Uh, good day all around for Penske racing. But a lot of strong cars in there, a lot of strong Hondas. Um, Rossi looked good all day. Kanon looked good all day. Uh, but just a, a really fantastic race. Now, I want to throw it to you, Joey. Um, what are your thoughts coming out of this Pocono race? Because everything I've read and seen and everything that I agree with is is totally positive about this race and this place.
6: I mean, I thought the race was awesome. I mean, we we talked about it before the show, uh, before we came on air, and it's, uh, you know, 42 lead changes throughout the day. And then you had a total of 590 passes among 22 drivers over 500 miles. And, um, you know, there was variety at the front. It wasn't Honda-dominated. It wasn't Chevy-dominated. It wasn't Penske-dominated. Um, so there was a good mix, and there's a lot of diversity as far as strategy calls and different things. I mean, that's how Will – Kind of ended up inheriting the lead, and I know Chris will touch on that later. But um, you know, it overall, I was pleasantly surprised with everything that we saw, and it it was a show similar to Indianapolis, but because they needed to do an increase in downforce levels just slightly, they weren't asterned out, and so we saw where there was a little bit more movement, especially with with turn one going into turn one and then coming out uh, going into turn three, Um, you know, and. Eventually, Will Power ended up using that to his advantage uh, by covering a low line in three, much like what we saw Elio uh, Ryan hunter do, rather, at uh, what's well, 2014 at Indy. So, um, you know, it's it's kind of interesting to see how those things coincide. And it was a show that I kind of expected to be similar to Indy, but it was it was that much more amped up.
1: Yeah, it was awesome, man. You know, for you listeners who are unfamiliar with Pocono, Pocono was a tri trioval. oval. It's a, it's a triangular in shape. All three turns are different. They're they're they're, they're banked differently. <laughs> they have a, a different, you know, degree of angle to them. Um, they're patterned after some of the classic racetracks. The track was designed by Roger Ward, who wanted to take three of his favorite racetracks and make his dream course. So you've got the turn one is modeled after the old defunct Trenton Speedway. Turn two, modeled after Indianapolis, and uh, turn three is modeled after. Um, milwaukee uh so it it, it presents quite a challenge uh to get that setup right and the, the track was designed for indy cars and the current indy cars to this day still perform well at that track in that setup and and just what a show they put on you know especially when you look at the start where everybody fanned out seven wide and so you you figure there's Twenty-two cars starting seven wide. The, the whole field was only three deep. It was it was a uh, it was breathtaking to watch um, that start there. And then the restarts were the same. So uh, again, we said Will Power had won the race, but Will suffered some adversity. He had uh, gone a lap down early. He had to endure not only a front wing change early in the race, but then later in the race had to have a rear wing change. And there were a couple of folks confused about how he actually was able to. You know, come off that, get back on the lead lap, and uh, actually win the thing. And Chris, he paid a lot of attention to the race, so uh, um, it's—I it, mean, it did happen. It was done. There was no uh, no chicanery, no no gimmies to Penske. But uh, Chris, kind of explain to our listeners how exactly Mr. Willpower pulled this off.
3: So the biggest thing is, first of all, what happened in the beginning of the race, uh, Will's front wing adjuster, a little ring on the top of uh, the nose actually broke. So the front wing actually was able to adjust itself, which is why he needed to come in and pit. So when that took place, you had <clears throat> him coming in to get that changed under green, and the stop took a little longer than expected. He lost an entire lap. And he was able to get a lap back under caution uh, after he took a waiver on after not pitting when the leaders pitted. Now the way, the reason why he was able to win, Will actually was able to make, decided to make a stop on the last lap of the caution for I believe it was the wreck that had Jerry Hildebrand and James Hinchcliffe involved. When he did that, he restarted at the back of the pack, but was able to go longer than anybody else because there was another caution 10 laps earlier for Sebastian Saavedra lightly making contact with the wall, exiting turn one, and stopping in the tunnel turn. Now, Power doing that, he was able to stretch his you know stint longer to where he was able to pit, I think the lap 160 or one... Yeah, I think it was 160 is when he made his last pit stop, or 161, rather, but the five or six laps before that pit stop... Will turned his fastest laps of the race at that point and during that time actually turned the fastest leader lap of the race right before he pitted. He was running laps at 217 miles an hour while everybody else on track was doing laps around 213, 14, 15. So that's how Power was able to get his gap enough where he was able to get the lead and maintain it after that pit stop.
1: So now towards the end there we had uh... – a. Yeah, you know, Will didn't walk away with this thing. He had a, he had a very racy Joseph Newgarden on his tail, and an Alexander Rossi right there behind him. Uh, I thought Will did a great job of, of trying to protect that inside line. Uh, that uh, you know, if uh, if he'd have let Joseph have that inside, he may, may have lost the race uh, to Joseph. But um, I, I, you know, I thought Will's driving was just brilliant. Uh, you know, Will is a guy who early in his career was pegged as this road course specialist you know you can't win on ovals his first oval win came at texas a number of years ago and since then he's he's performed pretty darn well on ovals he's kind of got this thing figured out he's got a got a win at fontana uh, this win at pocono is his second consecutive win at pocono so uh really crafty driving by will there at the end uh, to kind of preserve this thing um even though joseph admits that that, that that will was so hooked up he probably didn't have enough for him
3: well, the funny thing about Will winning is that this is actually he was actually the first driver to ever win back-to-back IndyCar races at Pocono. Um, Joseph, in my opinion, wasn't going to have anything for Will because I think Will knew more about what it took to win on Super Speedways than Joseph does. I mean, Joseph's only oval win, I think, is at Iowa. Um, but not only that, Joseph has had good runs at Pocono, so I mean, he's not going to be upset with second place. Another thing we also need to remember is that Alexander Rossi in third could have challenged the guys up front late in the going, uh, except that he had one problem. His fuel mixture knob actually fell off in the car, and the team actually were trying to get him to take his glove off under yellow and uh, reattach the knob or try to fiddle with it, but Rossi didn't want to do that because he figured that he wouldn't be able to get his glove back on.
1: Yeah, that's that's a tough one there, but he was, even without the even with the fuel mixture set at a not ideal setting, you know, coming home with uh, with a third place, there pretty sol- pretty solid run for Rossi. But uh, if it weren't for those, you know, the silly little problem there, I think Rossi could have won that thing.
3: He has yeah. a car for.
6: It. I mean, he he looked really really like the class of the field to me, especially in the early stages. It was it was resembling the Indy 500. Um, you know, from lap one to one hundred. I mean, it was. Rossi show for a little while, and uh, it started to look that way again at Pocono. And I think, all in all, when we look at this, I'm really shocked that we haven't seen Rossi win yet this year, given the solid runs that we've seen at Long Beach, at Indy, and, and of course now at Pocono. But we're coming up on some of his good tracks. You look at Watkins Glen. You look at Sonoma, where he finished fifth last year. I, I mean. There's still something there for for Rossi to do this year, but I think when we look at this season and how everything's playing out, I mean, there's still 15 guys mathematically eligible for this championship, and obviously, realistically, we're probably looking at the top five, top six guys entering the last three races. But if Will Power somehow goes from where he is in the title race right now, which I believe is fifth, and ends up winning this championship, I think – it's safe to say that this was probably the drive of the season for him. I mean, this was one of the most flawlessly executed drives given the, given everything he had to overcome. And, you know, on a day that it looked like it was going to be Dixon or Canon or Rossi, you know, Penske just honestly didn't look like they were that, that uh, caught up with everybody else. So, I mean, Scott Dixon ended up leading the most laps of the day with 51, and Rossi led, led the next most with 44. And, you know, both of those guys looked looked like the class of the field for, for a long time. So for Will Power to overcome what he did to do this, I mean, it was just a phenomenal effort. Um, I think championship picture, you know, when you really start to look at it, the guy that the two people that really didn't do themselves any favors got to be Elio Castroneves, who ended up finishing seventh. And then you got to look at Graham Rahal, who was mixing it up for for the lead with Tony Kanaan, and it was a lot of fun to see because they would just mix up and swap out who was diving down into turn three lap after lap there at the middle part of the race. But he ends up finishing ninth. And so, you know, keeping everything in perspective, he was really at the tail end of this championship battle trying to make a fight, the David versus the Goliath kind of thing. And um, right now it's hard to think that, that especially heading to Gateway – uh, where Penske's owned the short ovals this season. You look at Phoenix, you look at Iowa. I mean, Penske's only loss on the ovals this year is at the Indy 500. Um, you start to look at it, and everybody expects it to be a Penske party at Gateway. Um, I think Graham might be at the back end of this championship fight for sure.
1: Yeah, he may indeed be, yeah. But, I mean, as you look at this the yeah, So, Will is realistically, he's, I believe, 42 points out of first place, um, which is... Even though there's only three races remaining, it's you know double points of Sonoma, um, but realistically, as close as these guys at the top has been, uh, Will needs a little help from some some misfortune to fall upon uh, Mister Newgarden or Mister Dixon, um, but you've got all these guys who are in the thick of the thing, right? This this remaining schedule, uh, other than Gateway, um, Dixon has run very well at uh, Watkins Glen and Sonoma. Uh, multiple wins there actually weird footnote the only the only gateway winner in the current field is Castro Nevis um not sure that uh what he learned from his win back there many years ago will will translate uh, to the new car but um again you know the Penske's have been good in the oval so could be good for Castro Nevis so this thing is going to go down to the wire and the way the way I kind of see it going down is like uh, uh you know Newgarden is is Doing well, he's hot. I just have a feeling he's going to lose a close one this year. He's going to lose one in the finale to a seasoned guy like either Scott Dixon, Will Power, or Castro Nevis, and then he's going to come back next year and be nearly unbeatable. I, I don't think New Garden is right there at the at the championship level yet, but uh, then again, he's got he's got three races to prove me wrong.
6: I think what's funny about this championship is, you know, last year we saw Simon Pagino clean house and going into the last race of the year, Will Power ended up having that that gearing issue and didn't even get a chance to really fight for the title. Um, Ironically, last year Charlie Kimball and and Will Power collected each other I should say Charlie Kimball collected Will Power at uh, Watkins Glen and it was actually Charlie Kimball that ended up hitting Will Power at Pocono uh, this go-around. So If Will Power can dodge the gearing issues in Charlie Kimball, I think, honestly, he's a legitimate threat for the final few rounds. Uh, I think there's unfinished business at Sonoma for sure. But looking at Pagino, the defending champion, he's consistent, but for whatever reason, he's not been as dominant as he was last year. And, um, you know, I think you're not – I don't believe you're completely wrong to think – that about new garden. I mean, you got to learn how to lose one to win one is always the mantra with racing. We've seen Elio lose a lot of close championships.
1: And, and, I think and we've seen will win a lot of close ones too.
6: Yeah. So I, I think that when you really look at this, I think gateway is incredibly critical for Dixon just because we expect it to be a Penske party. And, you know, kudos to Honda for upping their game at every venue that's not a super speedway and kudos to Chevrolet for upping their their equipment level at super speedways because we saw an evenly matched field at Pocono. We've seen an evenly matched field for a majority of the races, regardless of there being different identities in the aero kits. Um, So this is the final year of this aero package before we go to the universal kit in 2018. And, I mean, it's setting up to be a really, really good one.
1: Absolutely it is. Yeah. Now I want to talk about a little bit of the silly season news, right? Cuz we you know, we we talked about last week, you know, Mikel Elotion is out at uh in the, in the 7 car at Schmidt Peterson. Um they brought in Sebastian Sevedra. He he uh ran a Pocono. Uh he's going to run a Gateway the last two races of the season. Um Jack Harvey will be picking up that ride. Harvey who was a standout in Indy Lights and uh haven't heard much from him since he was uh he was at Indy this year, so um, I, you know I don't, I'm not sure if he's bringing a little money to the table or whatnot. But uh, I did read an article uh, yesterday that that said it was confirmed that uh, Tony Kanaan will not be at Ganassi Racing next year and is talking to Schmidt Peterson. Um, that makes a lot of sense. We've all heard that. Unfortunately, this art, this particular article I read was out of a a um, a news source out of Brazil, and the entire article was in Portuguese. Now, reading Portuguese is not my forte. I mean, it sounds like Spanish, but it's not. And uh, in high school, I took German and didn't take Spanish, so I-, I couldn't glean a lot of information out of this article other than the fact that they're saying that it's, it's pretty much a done deal, that uh, uh, TK is moving on, from Ganassi, so uh, I know Joey, you're um you're in the uh, IndyCar paddock all the time. Chris, you're there as well. What, what are you hearing about TK and his plans for next year, or or, or who are they looking for to put in that ten car?
6: I mean, you know they make Google Translate, right? Like if you get on Chrome, you can hit the translate. You don't have to worry about reading Portuguese. Sorry, Frank. Um... Uh, I mean,
1: that, I mean that, that, that's all. That's all well and good, but yeah. But um, you, ever, you ever look at what Google Translate puts out there? It's, <laughs> it's sometimes very, it's bad. Um, they're very disjointed and whatnot. Yeah, that's why. That's how I got the gist of the article. So, uh, and I don't know. I don't know who the sources were for this, but I haven't read this in a you know a uh, an American based website. I haven't heard it from Racer or, or Miller or Pruitt or or any of these guys that seem to be on, on the um, you know right there with the uh, with the scoop.
6: You know, on the outside looking in, um, it makes some sense for TK to be looking at something like Schmidt Peterson. I think personal, personally, I, I think that if the the big domino that's been everybody's waiting for to fall is if Andretti's going to move to Chevy and if that's the case, then he's likely losing Sato and he's likely losing Rossi. that's the that's the big time rumor. We know for sure he loses Sato. We don't know yet hundred percent if he loses Rossi. That's the wild card in the entire Silly season. So I actually think that there's a small sliver of a chance that if they go to Chevy, that we could see TK move back to Andretti for at least a season. But personally, I could also see Hinch in that position. We could see a lineup next year at Ganassi. That is, that is Dixon, Rossi and Hinchcliffe, which is daunting to think about and would be a pretty good rival to, to Penske. There's, there's a lot to be left on the table because Andretti hasn't made that move. So, uh, from the outside looking in, TK to Schmidt makes sense. Uh, you know, I think that he's going to go to an established team. So the Unkos Racing situation, the the Carlin, um, or even uh, Harding Racing. You know, Harding Racing's pretty set with Gabby Chavez. They've got a multi-year agreement, and next year they're planning on going full-time racing. And, um, well, I, you, know, hard, you know,
1: Joey, I did, I did hear a couple of rumblings that they're going to go two cars next year, H- I, Hard, harding I, that is.
6: I mean, I talked to Larry Curry the other day. He didn't tell me anything on that one. Okay, uh, I
1: just, had yeah, somebody had. <laughs> they somebody,
6: don't tell me everything, though. I mean, that's the reason they keep everything, all these race teams keep it close to the vest. But, well, um, I think everyone, I, I tell, everybody, everyone
1: would like to have two cars, but, uh, you know, it comes uh, uh, to a, a matter of look, looking at the, uh, the the bank balance.
6: they they still need to make sure they establish funding for Gabby's car for the full season before they can really think about too I think that there's a reason Sevedra is somebody that was in that Schmidt car and I think that there that's a small possibility for next season um you know I next year for Yunko's lineup I personally believe it's going to be Spencer Pigot and Kyle Kaiser um you know I know that Ed Carpenter Racing it was put out there in on, Ra- on racer that Carpenter would like to have three teams with him in the part-time situation and have Piggott run full-time alongside Hildebrand. Uh, I, I personally think that if they don't do that, uh, Piggott's going to be the guy at Unco and so we're going to see Zach Veach as the part-timer over at um, switching out with Carpenter. But, um, you know, all in all, you know, everything I've heard is Chilton's going to end up taking that Carlin ride and Jack Harvey's going to be piloting next to him and they're going to, give a one-year option there and kind of see how Mateus lights pans out in Indy lights they They, Trevor Carlin's very high on Leist. Um, You know, I think the other thing to think on is where does Ed Jones fit into this because he's not guaranteed a spot a Dale coin next year. You know, does he float to Ganassi? Does he float to Andretti? Because we've seen the, the potential is certainly there with runs that he's had at Indy and other areas. And, I would like to see him re-up with Dale Coyne if possible, if they can get the money and everything together. Because I love the team of Bordet and Ned Jones together. I think it's a really cool dynamic, and um, they've done a lot of good things this year, especially prior to Indy. So, you know, also looking in, I know you asked me about TK, and I kind of went on a rant. But, um, oh, that's okay. Yeah.
1: But my next question but, is about Bordet. I mean, Bordet is clear to drive. Do you think we'll see him at Gateway, or do you, or do you think he's going to sit out to Watkins Glen and, and get back in on a road course? I mean, he hasn't made the they, you know, the, <clears throat> still the return date is still to be announced. Obviously, Pocono probably wasn't the place for him to return. Um, but, uh, you know, Gutierrez has paid for that ride for the rest of the season up front. And, uh, you know, Coyne has said that if he needs to, he'll put a third car there. But do you think he'll put a third car there for – for three races, or just the two, or maybe just
6: the one? The, when I talked to Dale, nobody expected Bourdais really to be fit and ready until Sonoma, um, and, and we only talked to Dale, or I only talked to Dale at about Sonoma in particular, and he said, look, if I've got to make three cars, we'll put three cars out there for him, and it was only at Sonoma. That said, it's the same package, the same everything else. Watkins Glen and Sonoma are very similar um and then how they set up the car so i I think that it's really just gonna be the last two i you know I don't see anything to be gained by running uh gateway with with board a The entry list should be out tomorrow for for gateway, and I don't expect board a to be on it and I see tomorrow this thing's gonna be cutting out at what what when are we pushing this podcast out we, uh, we yeah
1: we broadcast, yeah we so. brought we yeah we broadcast on Thursday. Tonight is Tuesday night, so uh yeah, so okay, so this so. yeah, this might be old news by the time uh we go live, but uh is what it is. So uh so you're feeling like Borday will sit out gateway and just wait for road course to, to kinda ease back in their driving? Yeah, I do. I you know, I I know he's
6: chomping at the bit. Um but understand this is that Bill Coin I mean that's that's an extra effort for the crews, you know, and and for Craig Hampson and Michael Cannon and all those guys. And so to to stretch them a little bit further, and they had a lot of issues this year with wrecked race cars, just pushing the envelope. I mean, they've they've totaled one car for sure, uh, from what I was told. The rest they've managed to to fix up and rebuild, but that's a lot of work on the teams. It's a lot of just work overall. And um, so to come back from that and to put three cars out there and you know, it's it's really tough on a team to to stretch themselves that far. But you know, uh, Dale seems determined to do it.
3: Just to kind of go back on what Joy was saying, the uh, entry list I actually forget, it was released uh, on Tuesday, and Bordéa is not on the entry list.
0: There you go.
1: There you go. Mystery solved. And it would have and it would have gotten away with it too if it weren't you for were you meddling kids and your dog. So. So, uh, with, with no further ado, um, you know, uh, again, hats off to IndyCar, hats off to Pocono for a fantastic event this weekend, and also, I do want to report, our, our guests from last week, um, uh, Dave Thompson and Jack Maloney, who were uh, running the um, uh, the support series there uh, with the Challenge Cup, they had a great time, uh, they they. Published a bunch of pictures on uh, on their web page so uh and on their facebook page so look up challenge challenge cup challenge cup um on uh facebook or uh the challenge cups uh website uh, those guys had a great time uh supporting pocono or uh, supporting indycar at pocono and um it was a pleasure to have us guys on so before we move on let's go round table make some picks for gateway you know, Gateway is, is kind of a wild card. We haven't raced there, oh, in a while, you know. Um, uh, anybody know, Chris, top of your head? 2003.
3: 2003,
1: okay, yep. And Elio Castroneves, the only former Gateway winner in the field. So I'm going to put Seth on the spot and give you the first pick for Gateway.
5: Uh, since he won there, I'll go with Elio Castroneves. Um, only fitting... Only fitting for him to win the most recent race and their return.
1: There you go. And plus you know what he needs it. He needs it. He's he's in the thick of this championship. So Richard, who you like for Gateway?
4: Uh I'm gonna go with another Penske card, Newgarden.
1: Okay, good pick. He was really solid. Iowa Gray, you have any opinion yep. opinion on who's gonna who's gonna do well at Gateway?
2: I'm going to go with um, Ryan hunter Ray. Seems to always do good on do well on the short ovals, and uh, he hasn't uh, hasn't broken through and gotten a victory this year. Ran really good at uh, Pocono this weekend, despite uh, having a setback on Saturday and being cleared to race on Sunday morning. So, and uh, he did a great job there. I think he's a little hungry. I think he might pick up the win.
1: All right, Ryan hunter Uh Chris, you could be next.
3: All right. He finished third at Phoenix. He finished second at Iowa. I'm going with the 2011 Indy 500 Rookie of the Year, J.R. Hildebrand.
1: Okay. All right. Hildebrand. Joy Barnes.
6: So, Connor Daly led testing back in May, um, but A.J. Ford Racing's had a tough go, although with the exception of Iowa, they've put at least one of their cars in the top ten in every race. That said, I'm not going to pick an A.J. Foyt racing car because I'm not crazy. But I actually think Will Power is going to do it. Now that the repave happened, um, they tested on it at smooth surface, I think that Pocono was just kind of the beginning of his late season run. And uh,
1: so I think Power. Man, that's an excellent pick. I, I was going to go with that. But uh, since you took it before me, I'm going to go with a guy who's been clutch in championship time. And that would be Scott Dixon. I think that the uh, the package is gonna, uh, you know, kind kind of favor the Hondas. Maybe, maybe not. I don't know. I'm gonna go with Scott Dixon. Um, that that's a guy who uh, is clutch as all get out when it comes to uh, championship time, and we are right there, which is a couple races left. So, um. the uh,
6: Graham Rahal, after the test, said that this was going to be the best short oval show of the year. I can't, uh, best I can't, oval show I can't
1: wait show. to see it. You because know, you're, you're talking it's a night race, too, cooler temperatures, you know, and and it's it's going to be exciting. I don't know how the ticket sales are shaking out. Uh, I hope they've uh, packed the place, but uh, if they haven't, maybe they'll pack the place next year if they put it on a tremendous show. So yeah. uh,
6: and, and, you know, the last thing I'll say on this is hats off to Gateway for the repave because there was a lot of cut tires at that first test. They repaved it. All the drivers are loving the repave. They say that there's a lot of grip there. They feel like there's a lot of side by side. And Gateway isn't, you know, an ISC or an SMI track. They don't have a lot of money behind them, so they're really trying to invest in in this opportunity and try to invest in keeping IndyCar and maybe even getting getting it to where you know NASCAR hangs around at that place a little bit longer. So hats off to Gateway for the repave.
1: And Joe, to your point, the, uh, the guys at the Gateway—you know—they have a truck race there. They'd love to have an Xfinity race there, maybe even a Cup race in one one date. But this IndyCar thing for them is going to be a tremendous weekend. They've done a great job of putting that show on. I uh, can't wait to see how it comes down. I hope I hope the stands are full. I hope the racing is great and the fans have a great time. But with no further ado, let's move over and talk about talk about NASCAR. Uh, NASCAR was at Bristol, Bristol Night Races, Bristol baby. You know, one of the coolest races of the year. Um, and it was Mr. Kyle Bush who uh, swept the weekend in all three series. Um, not all four series, uh, <laughs> according to Matt Weaver's article. But, um, you know, I I didn't have a chance to see a lot of it. I, I was watching in and off. Uh, but, Seth, I know you were tuned in. So uh, uh, take us through this Bristol thing, man. Kyle Bush was pretty strong at the end there. But uh, young Mr. Eric Jones uh, nearly won this thing. And that for, for Jones, that's the difference between being in the playoffs and not.
5: Well, Jones led quite a bit of the race. He led over just over half the race. He started from the pole. He never left the top five. He was inside in the battle the entire night. Uh, Kyle just flat out out drove him. Uh, Kyle drove the high line, rim, uh, rode along the wall, while uh, Eric Jones stuck with the traction compound the track bite on the bottom of the track. And Kyle slowly caught up to him with the help of lap traffic. Both he and Matt Kenseth drove by him and uh when Eric Jones tried to move up, he just didn't have the grip. He didn't have the the speed that c- both Kyle Bush and Matt Kenseth had. Uh Kyle Bush, this is his second weekend sweep, if you don't go by Matt Weaver. But on a side note to that, uh there are several modified teams. That- Since that article, have extended offers to Kyle Busch to run next year in the Modified race there. So who knows? But, hey,
1: I, I'd love to see Kyle take him up on
5: that. Uh, I would actually think that would be very interesting. I don't think he's driven a Modified as of yet. But going back to uh, the weekend sweep, it was the second time he's done it in his career. He said what made this one special compared to the last one is Brexton. His son was there. Uh, He's two years old. He wasn't around back in 2010 when he first did the sweep. And he, Kyle, the last time he dominated all three races, this time he had to come from the back in the truck race uh, because of a speeding penalty. He drove by everybody on the outside, just flat out outpaced everyone. Uh, Noah Gregson also started from the back on the same restart, Kyle's teammate, and Gregson could only make up two spots while Kyle Butch made up 18. In the Xfinity race, Kyle, he was up front most of the night. I want to say he pretty much dominated that one, but in the cup race, he started about mid-pack, had to work his way up there, ran down Eric Jones, his protege, as some call him, and uh, took the lead with about 50 or so to go and never looked back. Uh, other stories, there there really wasn't much story. Uh, art and Attraction Compound, some people liked it, some didn't. Uh, although there was one, uh, Denny Hamlin on Pit Road, tried to get a good spot coming off, completely stopped, ended up uh, not getting the spot he wanted. And now there's talk of possibly a, a cone rule being considered on pit road at some tracks. Uh, Gray, what do you think about that?
2: Uh, that cone thing something they do on some of the short tracks. Uh, you know, this is the big leagues. I think we need to, you know, it, there's other ways of fixing that, fixing that issue. But uh, you know, I, I thought all in all it was a pretty good race. Decent crowd there uh, for Bristol. Uh, been a little bit down over the last few years, and of course they had a lot of hype coming into the uh, to the night race. And uh, Kyle Busch just put on a show all weekend long. And I don't know if any of you other saw saw the tweet that uh, that Kyle Larson put out on Sunday uh, morning, but it said that you know uh, he, he thought that Kyle Busch might just be the most talented driver uh you know to come along in his lifetime and and he said hats off to him but he really did put on a put on a great show and it was it was a decent race up there we had uh we had uh, you know 21 lead changes among uh among six drivers uh very competitive race uh like you like you alluded to eric jones it looked like for a while there he was probably going to pick up uh his first win but he was he was stymied by uh by the, by the Kurt, Kyle Bush Express. I think, you know, uh, we, we've talked about this on some of the shows past, that Kyle Bush can be kind of a streaky kind of guy. And, uh, you know, he's had some bad luck, uh, run well all season long and been in a position to win. Uh, probably he, he could be sitting here with six or seven wins right now, and he's only got two. I think he's peaking at the right time. I think that 18 team is going to head into the uh, – to the playoffs with a with a lot of momentum.
5: Now, Chris, you said you had an opinion on the cone rule.
2: Yeah. uh, I
3: frankly I am gonna have to disagree with Gray on this one. I think that the Cone rule should be implemented in Cup at least let's let's start off in trucks and then work our way up to Cup, but I mean everybody's you know, a lot of people think, well, let's cup it's you know the top leagues, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, let's face it. The SS Racing Integrity kind of set sail in 2004, so there's not much left that we can uh, really do to go down. I mean, considering we have stages now. In fact, I'm expecting them to announce that you know they're going to do various you know very length stages uh, for next year. But quite frankly, I think that it will be an interesting idea. But I would like to see it implemented in trucks first before we see it in Cup.
5: Yeah, I agree. Either that or try in the All Star race. I mean, they've tried just about everything else in the All Star race. Why try that in the All Star race?
3: Uh, why not Zoidberg? <laughs> anyway,
5: uh, Richard.
4: Yeah, just uh, a couple of um, things, news stories that came out over the Bristol weekend. Um, one of them, I don't know if uh, if you guys have heard about this, but it's potentially a really serious accident on uh, pit road. I think it was on Friday for uh, one of the crew chiefs, Frankie Kerr where uh, the car actually fell off the jack while he was underneath it. Um, the and jack-buckled. The, yeah, um, so very, very lucky there. He thought that the, uh, the jack stands that they normally slide under the car were in place, and it turns out they weren't. And uh, as you say, the jack buckled, and uh, he took the full weight of the car on there. Um, amazingly, he was back... Uh, back at the track uh, either the next day or, yeah, it would be the next day for Saturday night race and was able to call the race. Uh, He did say it was good that they've got a week off to to recuperate because uh, that's going to be pretty sore right now, I think. Um, Very, very lucky there. And that is one of the difficulties with Bristol is that um, because it's so small, it's not like a typical NASCAR track where you have the hauler and then you have a garage opposite the hauler where you can work. You're basically working out of the hauler or on pit road or wherever you can find space. Um, you're
2: working on pit road, essentially under yeah. a tent. In under a tent, in a lot of cases. And up until a few years ago, when they uh, when they put the concrete uh, pits down, you would be in soft asphalt. And on a very hot day, your jack and jack stands would sink down into the pavement, and it it, <laughs> it was really a mess. It used to it used to be a mess. But you know, you're talking about the the uh, the incident there on 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 pit road during practice. I would think that uh, you know. Quite. I wouldn't think. I don't know if fines will come out of it. I know dur- during the course of the race, uh, the NASCAR inspectors work in pit road. If you have to jack your car up to go underneath it, they require you to put a jack stand under it before uh, before a crewman can crawl under it. So. Uh, yeah, you know, and I think I,
4: it's one of those. It's one of those very difficult things that, you know, everybody just gets so complacent about it because yes. the jack stands keep going up going underneath all the time. And uh, on a side note to this, um, I don't know if anybody has seen this. Uh, I don't think we discussed it recently, but uh, there is talk within NASCAR of actually going to a pneumatic system for jacking the car up, similar to what they're running IndyCar and V8 supercars down in Australia, Uh, to get away from the jackman, uh, both from a a safety perspective and a cost-saving perspective, in that they can remove uh, one of the members of the pit crew on a weekend. Yeah, it would be 40 less
5: people on Pit Road, 40 less people needing a plane fl- uh, ticket yep. or a hotel room. So yep. it would save a lot of money and be a big safety improvement.
2: And and 40 less $10,000 jacks on Pit Road, too, because that's what the, that's what the price of these things is, has, has climbed to with all the development. And a lot of teams now, the top echelon teams, are, are building are building their own jacks as well yeah we'd
4: uh, we, we don't go to AutoZone and pick one up that's for sure
2: yeah so that's another that's another thing and i'll tell you I, from the things i'm hearing uh it's it's this uh, the discussions are leading to quite serious about uh, yeah. this thing happening next year
4: i think some of these uh these leaks to the media uh, as they're coming out are, uh, are probably sort of deliberate leaks from nascar to try and uh, sort of uh, you know, get a feel for what the fans think of uh, of that. I mean, at the end of the day, it's not going to make any difference to the fans, really. They're not really going to notice it. Um, I mean,
6: doesn't this... Wouldn't this also be 40... Well, technically 36, because that's all that goes to the track anymore. Uh, 36 less jobs? I mean, it's just race cuts that end up
4: happening. A lot of these guys... uh, Sorry. uh, a, A lot of these guys who work on the pit crew, they're... A lot of them are contracted to the team, so they are not full time. Some of them are, but a lot of them now are not full time employees of the company that they will represent. Uh, I'm sure, you know, Gray will know more about this, but back in the day, you'd have a guy who'd be a fabricator Monday to Thursday, and then Friday he'd get on a plane and be a jackman or a tire changer. Now, these guys are a lot of them are ex sort of college football players and, and the like, and are, are pretty. High end athletes um, and will move around and, we'll be, and work purely as contractors. So, yes, you're right, there are 40 less jobs, but whether that's considered a pure NASCAR job in the way that a team would consider it a job or if it's a contractor, I, I don't know how they approach that.
6: Well, you
2: know, well,
6: well, what, in what in what are, in, go ahead. Go, no, no, sorry, Gary,
2: go ahead. What I was going to say, in this, and in, in Richard's quite right, back, back in the day when, when I started, I mean you were a dual purpose dual purpose you 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 worked in, on the car and and then you if you had any athletic ability, you went over the pit wall and you served as a pit crew member uh in the last uh you know uh fifteen or twenty years that has begun begun to change uh they've been these guys have been hired for for uh for the purpose there, there are not many dual purpose guys left now on the upper echelon pit crews these guys are like Richard Richard said, these are former college athletes that have been hired, and basically that's what they do. Uh, they pit the car, and uh, you're talking about uh, some pretty high priced talent for your over the wall guys. So there there's one thing that they're talking about that that's a that's a pretty high priced salary you're gonna you're gonna eliminate plus travel. And uh, and all the other things, the equipment and everything to to go into it. So that's one thing. But you know, there's so many other ways NASCAR can 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 save money. This is just one thing. I don't know, you know, where this was initiated. I know we've we've seen the pneumatic jacks in sports car racing. We've seen it in IndyCar. Uh, oh, and it's and I imagine you know by now it's 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 pretty well developed. We see it in IMSA. Uh, all those cars have the pneumatic jacks.
6: Um,
0: yeah, I mean.
2: I look at this as
6: just personal perspective. I look at this as just another thing in the long line of what's become just a constant evolving door of changes that leaves NASCAR without a pure identity. Like, you know, 20 years ago, you know, we had an identity in NASCAR. And, you know, now now it just feels like they're picking little things from either Formula One or from Short Track or from this or that or now VA Supercars-ish. You know, and it's just like they used to be ahead of the curve in a lot of ways.
2: Well, you're right. NASCAR was antiquated in a lot of things they did. Uh, You know, they still, you know, using five lug nuts on a wheel when every other motorsports uh, uh, division in the world was using uh, uh, the, the single nut wheel. Uh, NASCAR stuck with, like, you know, stayed true to its stock car roots with things like that. I mean, we're looking at only four years ago, they went to fuel injection. So they're still, and the cars themselves are based on antiquated technology. Uh, and, and you're right that they, they had kept that, and that was part of their identity. But I think you know, as we discuss every week, we talk about the problems and the issues with NASCAR and its dwindling fan base. I think they're looking at probably doing some, making some of these changes uh, to appeal to a to a uh, to a different fan base, to an evolving fan base that's somewhat different. So that's why they, you. I think we'll see more changes like this, and I agree with you to a, to a, to a degree. Being a purist and being a being someone that's been involved in sport for over 30 years, yeah, the, these changes are quite different. And, uh, you know, I, so in some ways, I don't really know what to think of them.
4: Yeah, I, think,
2: yeah. uh, I think part of it as well is
4: the one of the great things and one of the, for want of a better word, pure things about NASCAR is more than probably any other major motorsport series in the world, it's driver-based. You know, your results are based on the talent and the performance of the driver. And that's that's great for the fans. It's brilliant for the fans. But from the manufacturer's perspective, um, the guys like the Toyotas, the Fours and the Chevys and potentially, you know, other manufacturers wanting to get involved in the sport, they want a bit of a return as well, I think. I think they want their technology to be highlighted. And I know the the concept of highlighting technology in, in NASCAR is a bit of a contradiction, but... There's a lot of things that go on behind the scenes that your everyday fan um, doesn't see, but uh, you know these aspects of uh, some of these technological improvements help the help the car manufacturers. uh, what's the word? Legitimise their investment in in NASCAR because it's not a cheap sport to be involved in, and if they can help display technology and help display some of their advances in that sport, then uh, then I think that's a good thing. I know Toyota, are, you know, they're, they're the team to beat at the moment, and they're pushing that quite heavily. and in the future, it may be Ford are the team, to, are the manufacturer to be, or Chevy are the manufacturer to be. But uh, <laughs> I think the more aspects that give the manufacturer something to work with, the more likely they are to be involved. And that's, would,
6: very yeah, well, that's very true. Yeah, but that's very true. And that, go ahead, go ahead. Well, I was just gonna. Well, I had. Uh, I think, whenever I hear Brad Keselowski back at Kentucky make the comments he make, talking about the package, really putting the drivers in the box, and then you see things like Indianapolis happen, where for an hour and a half they, nobody could get out of their own way, and it was red flags galore. And then the very next week, you wreck on lap one at Pocono. The package has just made made it to where it's so difficult to pass that it, it's just made everybody it, it's almost like it's going to sound terrible but if you've got the ultimate short attention span then the last you know 30 laps are definitely the thing for you and because it's just going to end up becoming a wreck fest half the time it seems like because the package is confines the drivers all these drivers in nascar are incredibly talented I personally don't believe that they get a chance to show off their talent like we had a chance to see 20 years ago because of the way the package is, the coil binding, the, the way the splitter is, you know, things of that sort, has just put everything in such a tight package. Now we've got so much side force with the way that we develop the, the arrow with the side sides of the car that come up over the hood and under the door. It, it just seems a lot – I agree that everything should evolve and everything should change because motorsports is an ever-changing world. But I think that we've gotten so far now that the drivers have become almost irrelevant in some cases.
4: Well, I'm going to tell you. But I don't. Sorry, go ahead, Greg. Sorry.
2: Well, that's a little bit of a that's a little bit of a contradiction too. And what you hear what Brad Keselowski says, but he's just one voice. But we know, and, and Richard can, can can back me up on this. We know a lot of things that we can do to make these cars. Uh, Take away some downforce where it puts it back in the driver's hand. You can go and lop off about four inches of the right rear quarter panel where, where we reduce some of these side forces. But here's the problem. these dri- The drivers are going to be the very ones that scream about that and not like that. You know what I'm saying? So it's a fine balance between what the drivers want and what the drivers like. And NASCAR walks that tightrope because, you know, for every Brad Keselowski you got, you've got several others that are on the opposite side of the fence. And we know of a lot of things that we can do aerodynamically to those cars to, to, to change them. But NASCAR allows the rules to be what they are because the drivers, you know, they, they are their ticket. That's what brings the fans in. It's not so much the cars like it used to be back in the back in the day when I started being a race fan. You know, it was a lot about the iron that we raced, and they drew brought in a lot of fans. Now it's it's a totally driver driven sport for the most part. They are the stars, and NASCAR will cater to them in in just about all cases.
0: Okay.
5: And uh, another major story coming out this week. uh, Brad Keselowski admitted and announced that at the end of the season his truck team Brad Keselowski Racing is going to shut down. Uh, It is the only full-time Ford truck team and it has one driver, Chase Briscoe, right now in the playoffs on points and Austin Sindrick, 10th, about 50 or so points uh, on the outside. Uh, It it's so only uh, 10 years old, that team. Uh, they, Ford does not do much, if any, support to the truck series. Chevy does more support than, than Ford. Toyota does more support than Chevy and Ford combined. Uh, although most of that Toyota support goes to one of two teams. You can probably guess which one. Uh, <laughs> uh, but that being said, uh, there's a lot of talk about crate motors for the truck series. To try to cut costs. There's a lot of talk about. Even possibly. uh, Taking away. Or banning wind tunnel time. For the truck series. To try to cut costs. Uh, Parker Klingerman for example. Who finished in the top 10. For Henderson Motorsports this past weekend. That team only has two full time employees. Compared to Brad Keselowski Racing. And they're a part time team. Basically. Basically. What are your thoughts on uh, BKR shutting down?
2: You know, I, I think it's, I think it's a shame. And but there again, you know, the big thing is, and Kyle Bus- Bush has addressed this with his truck team as well. It's the cost. Those are 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 not money making uh, propositions. They're going to lose money in the long run. And, and I know a lot of people look at that and say, well, they got all this sponsorship and you've got a you've got a car that makes all this money. But when you've got, you know, you've got the salaries and everything else that go along with it, these these are, and, and, and you know, you don't have the big TV revenue that the that the Cup series has. You know, these guys, even even the, the teams that we look at as well funded struggle to to uh, to turn a profit and in most cases, they don't turn any profit at all. And a lot of that is true when you go up into the uh, Xfinity series. Uh, the Xfinity, Xfinity series, at best case scenario, is a break-even proposition. And I think you know, if NASCAR is going to uh, these these, with, for lack of a better term, these double AA and triple A series to survive, NASCAR is going to have to take a serious look. And, and given these, these two series a little bit of an injection uh, of, 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 of funds, either it being uh, a better TV, negotiating a better TV package for these guys, doing something with purses or, or whatnot, or, or are you going to see the, the car counts and the truck counts diminish greatly in the years to come?
6: Yeah, We saw KHI... Pull out some years ago um, and we saw the sport take a pretty big hit in, in the truck series with that and this is just going to be the equivalent to that it's going to be another huge hit and honestly there's not enough fans in the stands to justify the truck series right now and that's sad because the truck series is highly competitive but there's not enough marketing that gets put into it there's not, there's not enough prize money that gets put into it, and there hasn't been enough prize money being put into the truck series for a long time. And, you know, at first it was NASCAR thinking, well, we can trickle our Cup guys in there, and it'll help, you know, bolster everything because they want to see those drivers. You know, there's a reason the truck series flourished for a long time when we didn't have all those people mixed in, and it's just because it was a really good racing product, and we got to learn who these guys were that are in the Cup series now. I think about Kurt Busch. You know, you think about Greg Biffle there for a long time. Um, And it it was executed again in in, in the Xfinity Series, then known as the Bush Series. Mark Martin would come down and and occasionally whoop everybody's butt. And, you know, but we had the number two uh, AC Delco Chevy that, you know, whether it was Steve Park or Dale Jr., and we got to learn more about those guys uh, come up before they made their chances at the Cup Series. There was was a lot of health because – a it was being marketed the right way and it was just being executed across the board the right way but i think that now we have such a lack of funds that there's that's why there's talk of crate motors going into the truck series because realistically i mean building motors is expensive and to ask a team to do that i know some of them are up in arms over that but i mean realistically you look at how everything's being handled right now and it's hard to think that this thing can continue to go on like this for another five years without some sort of major influence one way or the other.
2: And you're right, exactly. And also, you know, you brought up the brought up the idea of crate motors. We're at, we're going to uh, introduce the composite bodies on the Xfinity series cars coming up at Richmond. We're working on those in our shop now, and that's that's the wave of the future. And that looks like that's going to be somewhat of a cost cutting measure, and we'll probably uh, see that introduced possibly in the truck series down the road. I think what they want to do in the truck series first is do the crate motors and do the Xfinity with the bodies and then maybe flip-flop and, and introduce crate motors and Xfinity down the road and composite bodies and trucks later as well as a cost-cutting measure. But, you know, you, you brought up the idea about the health of, of the two series with, with the, uh, well, we'll say interlopers, bringing the cup guys in and, and, you know, that's what the fans want to see. And then obviously, obviously we've had all this uh, uh, go on the last couple of years where they're reducing uh, the number of uh, – reducing the participation of the cup drivers in both series. They, they want to try to make – see these young guys make names for themselves. But I think in most cases, the fans who, who go to the Sunday races still want to see those same established stars uh, race on, on Saturday. So I think the jury's still going to be out on that whether that's going to that's going to succeed. Um, you know, I had my doubts when it, when it did, but you know, we, we'll see how it goes down the road because the the proof's going to be in the pudding in, in in the number of you know the TV ratings and the fans in the stands. I know,
6: yeah. know Seth, I know Seth, you're eager to make this point, but let me jump mm-hmm. in here. No right quick. I think you look at a track like Eldora, and it is the perfect embodiment of everything the truck series should strive for because a that place packs out not just because we see a unique show on dirt, but also we get to see a mix of short track talent, dirt track talent, sh- you know, short asphalt, etc. They're all mixing it up with either a some some Cup guys that can make the show or, or established drivers. You know, we see Ken Schrader come into that thing from time to time. You get a healthy mix of everything from every form of of you know short track stock car racing. It's all there. So if you can find a way to replicate that at a couple of other venues, and note that it's Eldora. It's not one of the three races for NASCAR at Texas Motor Speedway or Charlotte. They go off and they do their own show somewhere else in a different market where fans don't generally get NASCAR racing. And I think that's very much key. You look at places like Gateway that they go to. They do a good job with with marketing that area. Not marketing, but a good job with a fan base there. Lucas Oil used to be a pretty popular place. You look at all those venues that go away from the grain, away from the SMI and ISC tracks, hitting up their own markets to bring in a healthy balance. And I think if you can execute what you have at Eldora in multiple places, then the truck series is definitely something that can thrive, and why not try to execute that in Xfinity as well?
2: You know, I I think you made a good point, And, and one of the biggest mistakes I think NASCAR ever made was taking the Xfinity and truck series races away from uh, Lucas Oil Speedway, or used, we used to call it RRP, the same week as the Brickyard 400. That brought a lot of fans into the area, and it gave them a, a mix of, of, of different racing. You're exactly right. Uh, those shows uh, were terrific shows over there. Uh, they would race trucks one night, then race the Xfinity cars, and then we'd go over to the Speedway uh, you know, for the Cup cars. Similar thing happens in May. You know, You have a you have a week of sprint car and midget car activity all around the area that leads up to the Indy 500, you know, on Sunday. So yeah, you're 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 absolutely right. I think, uh, you know, you you can market these things a lot better. But I do believe that that uh, they they didn't need to go away from Lucas, uh, at all with the two minor league series. I think that was that that actually enhanced the Brickyard 400 weekend.
5: Now, the two points I have, uh, one, uh, Joey had mentioned KHI shutting down. That was, you could say, the first domino. You also had Turner Scott go away. You had Junior Motorsports, their truck team, went away. You now have Brad Keselowski going away. You had Red Horse Racing go away. You had a lot of the powerhouse teams disappear. In that time, you've also had GMS Racing come into the sport, and you had a Tory racing the 16-truck go from part-time to full-time. Uh, otherwise, there haven't been a lot of new teams in the Truck Series. Now, going also to what you were saying about them leaving uh, short tracks and joining the Cup Series, there, next season there are nine weekends in which there are triple headers. Uh, Daytona, Dover, Vegas twice. Bristol, Phoenix, Homestead, Texas. Granted, uh, there will be a lot of fans at all of those races, but at the same time, you're not giving the Truck Series its own identity anymore. You're going to have a lot of drivers from the Cup Series go down. I mean, granted, this year it's mainly been Kyle Busch or the Dillon Brothers, but By having them constantly at the 1.5-mile tracks, they're not getting the exposure that they once did in one sense. Send them to Hickory. Send them to South Boston. Send them back to short tracks, or at least some short
2: tracks. Yeah, and, and NASCAR is going to have to work with these tracks and not come up with these exorbitant sanctioning fees to get them. Obviously, in some places, the tracks are going to have to bring their standards up a little, a little bit, but don't kill the tracks with uh, with exorbitant uh, with exorbitant sanctioning fees. To they're going to have to work with them because basically, if they don't put in some stopgap measures, uh, we're going to have we're going to have some serious problems in both of those series uh, down the road. I think, but yeah, you're you know, I, I just think that you know the variety uh, will help uh, will help the series those two series more than anything. So guys, so uh, so
1: we're off next to Darlington. Now we have this uh, next weekend off, correct?
5: Uh, Xfinity is at Road America. That's, all, that's that always a
1: fantastic event. Yeah, so the cup season is off. So we, so we could actually hold off on making our picks for Darlington and think about it for another week. But the, again, uh, the Darlington, the Southern Five Hundred, everyone's getting ready with their retro paint schemes. We've seen a lot of these coming up yeah. there. Um, you know, uh, Keselowski is going to be running the Midnight. Oh, uh, there's
5: says. one there's one car that i know of that will not have a throwback pain scheme and that's kurt bush he's running the monster car yes
2: yeah, some, boo, some te- boo, kurt bush. yeah <laughs> some teams go for it but uh, you know that's turned out you know darlington hit a home run with that with that uh, several years ago with the throwback weekend and it's and it's the fans have really responded uh the last several years darlington has been well you know one of the one of the better attended races uh close to a sellout uh, the last three years and uh, the fans really enjoy it. And it's kind of, you know, giving the fans back a little bit, you know, of, of what they want to see. The teams really enjoy it. They get up for it. There's a lot of uh, effort and, and emphasis put in their throwback uh, color schemes. I know ours, our, 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 our three car was done today out on our shop floor today. And it's a, it's a throwback car, throwback uh, theme car. That I think the fans will, uh, will really like. It's the old that's uh, already been been done. It's not a big secret, but it's the uh, old uh, blue and yellow Wrangler colors that Dale Earnhardt had many many years ago, and uh, that car looks really good.
1: Yeah, it does look really good. Yeah, that's uh, yeah that's Dale's first couple of championships behind the, you know that uh, will that Wrangler car so with but uh, Darlington that's a track I've been to once or twice and and. Gray, you go there every year. Uh, it's a neat place, but we've got a week off, so we'll hold off for making picks to, uh, for Darlington until uh, next week's show. But uh, you know, before we run out of time, I want to talk about Formula One. We got a big, a little bit, a little bit of big news in Formula One. Joey, one of your favorite drivers, has extended his contract in the next year. I'll let you go ahead and uh, announce that.
6: Yeah, uh, one of the funner personalities in Formula One, even though he doesn't say much. Uh, Kimi Raikkonen is re-upped with Ferrari on what has become a continued one-year rollover. Uh, I don't expect this thing to carry past next season, uh, especially when you've got Antonio Giovinazzi and um, Charles Leclerc hanging around uh, Ferrari Junior Drivers. But, um, you know, good for him if uh, I don't know if this is going to be him accepting the role of number two permanently or anything like that. But uh, it comes at an opportune time over the summer break. uh, And they're getting ready for spa this next weekend. And it's a place that he's owned pretty well. So uh, interesting to see how how everything plays out. It's the first domino to fall in silly season as we wait to see what happens with Sergio Perez and, and Fernando Alonso and guys like that.
1: Absolutely now, now Chris for uh, Chris for your part you uh, uh, you threw the uh, twenty bucks on Taylor. You said Kimmy doesn't win this year.
3: Uh, I think I'm okay with that.
1: <laughs> you said it.
3: <laughs> yeah, I think it was uh, Kimmy. Yeah, I don't think he's going to win the rest of the year. Although he may come close, I think he might get a podium or two.
1: All right, but but you know Ferrari still will benefit from. His years of experience in the series, he's got, he's got a, a, a title several years ago and in one of the most interesting championship runs that went down. You yeah, it was... Uh, 2007. Yeah, boy, <laughs> he'd say it was, you know, Scott Dixon-esque in 2013 where he jumped from uh, third place in the standings to go ahead and take the thing. So, uh, yeah, good for Kimmy, you know, good to have him around. He, he left the series for a little while. He's run NASCAR trucks and everything else is fun, so... Uh, good to have Kimmy around. Um, I imagine that uh, Vettel is still going to be right there in the other Ferrari. Um, but again, there's a lot of bricks to fall. Uh, you know, Renault was in flux. Uh, Joe, you could tell us more about some of these uh, other teams through the grid or, or who we're looking at. Yeah,
6: I mean, as far as right now, we're still trying to figure out with Mercedes, Hamilton, and Botus, uh they – from what I understand, from what everything that I've seen and people I've talked to, Toto Wolf really likes the combination of Hamilton and Botas. It's worked out better than he had thought. Um, and obviously, to, to re-up with Ferrari, I Red Bull's going to continue the status quo with Ricardo with Verstappen. I think really the question is, is Renault going to go the way of Robert Kubica after a pretty impressive test uh, a couple weeks ago? Or are they going to try to maybe go somewhere else? Uh, maybe they go Force India 2.0 and bring Sergio Perez in as a teammate. That's that's been rumored, but um, and Perez said he wanted a deal after the summer break somewhere. Um, so currently no takers apparently. Big surprise. But uh, you know, all in all, I think the the interesting thing is, is with Ferrari announcing a deal with Sauber for updated motors. It's going to be interesting to see where Pascal Wehrlein falls where Marcus Ericsson fall, because I honestly think that we could see Sauber become the Toro Rosso for, for Red Bull, that, that Red Bull is. I think that we're going to look at Sauber as what Ferrari's going to do, because I think Giovinazzi and Leclerc are both going to occupy seats at Sauber next season, which is going to leave Pascal floating somewhere, and it's probably going to leave Ericsson out of an opportunity.
4: Yeah, I think um, some of the uh, sort of feedback from uh People that I know at, uh, at Mercedes are saying that uh, the reason Verline didn't get uh, moved to the, the Force India um, drive and Ocon sort of uh, got the the prime drive ahead of him is because Verlin's not the easiest guy to work with. Um, he doesn't. He's not a team player. He doesn't interact well within the organization. He doesn't work well with other engineers and other drivers. He's very much his own person, and and, and maybe. You need a little bit more than that in Formula One. You need to, especially at that, you know, that stage of the career. Yes, when you've won multiple World Championships or you've been in the sport for ten years, you can, you know, you can you can have that sort of uh, uh, outlook. But uh, I think at his stage, I think he needs to to be a little bit more of a team player. And from from all the information I've heard, that was one of the reasons he didn't get that in uh, India drive this year. So he hasn't really. Like dominated at Sauber as you'd expect him to. Um, so maybe he's one of these guys that's a pretty good driver, but his timing's not right and his face just doesn't fit within the organization. And he'll be farmed out back to DTM or IndyCar or something like that. And, and just, you know, another talent that misses out on uh, on Formula One.
6: Yeah, I, I look at that situation. I mean, you, you take one look at Wehrlein, and he's like, he has the look of a Lewis Hamilton and the diva kind of personality, but it's not coming with the, the same sh- results. Exactly. But, but uh, well, he doesn't, I will, he doesn't
0: have the car of a Lewis Hamilton.
6: Well, I, I, mean, I, was about to, I was about to get to that. Is that. He's driving a Sauber with a year-old Ferrari engine, and he's still the only guy between his teammate and him that's finished in the points despite missing the opening two rounds. Um, so, I mean, it's not terrible drives, but I think when you see what Ocon did – head-to-head head with him at, at Manor last year. I mean, it makes all the sense in the world to say, okay, Ocon two we're sticking in that ride. I actually wonder myself, because another guy that's that's a Mercedes junior driver that's fallen by the wayside is Felix Rosenquist, and he's shown to be a jack-of-all-trades kind of driver, no matter if it's uh, you know in, in Super Formula in Japan. It doesn't matter if it's DTM or, or an Indy Lights or an IndyCar test opportunity where he was on par with Scott Dixon's pace at Mid-Ohio two years in a row. I wonder myself, like, how does this guy not not fit into the equation in some capacity, at least for, you know, a back end role? And and where line does? I it's it's kind of like Red Bull Academy. There's all these junior drivers, but really hardly any of them get through. Um, you know, kind of chiming off of the talking about silly season. I, I'm kind of curious uh, where everything sits at at Toro Rosso because Carlos Sainz is somebody that I could see sliding over to McLaren and, and filling in Fernando's shoes or sliding into Renault. And we could cause Pierre Gasly's probably going to be a Toro Rosso driver next year. It's just a matter of whose seat he's taking. Um, you could argue that Danny Cavat doesn't deserve the seat. I would argue that, you know, they just replaced Danny Cavatt at Red Bull racing with somebody just as reckless and Verstappen, even though the ceiling's higher, he's made a lot of the same mistakes. Um, So, you know, he's taken out his teammate a couple of times this year, So, along with a few other people. So I I would look at this situation and wonder who they're really going to go with because their attachment to Cavatt seems genuine. So I don't really know if their attachment to Saints is just as genuine.
4: I mean, they, they do seem to, I believe at some point, somebody within the Toro Rosso, the Red Bull campus said that we want to keep science, but if uh, you know, we, we appreciate how talented he is as a, as a driver, and if an offer does come along, you know, and he has an opportunity to go and race somewhere else, we'd listen to that offer. Now that doesn't sound very reassuring for the kid, unfortunately. Um, but you know, as you say, it's it's one of those things, and, and I've talked about this with a lot of a lot of people. The benefit. Of being involved in like the Red Bull Young Driver Scheme or the McLaren Young Driver Scheme or the Ferrari Young Driver Scheme, they take so many. What does it actually take to succeed? What does it take to get that drive in a you know Red Bull, a Ferrari, and Mercedes? Because Mercedes have this you know big pool of young drivers, and I mean I, I've worked with Valtteri. I've got a huge amount of respect for him. I think he's a fantastic driver, very underrated. You know, there was people within that pool that maybe could have taken that ride, and because of certain situations, he's missed out on that. Um, I mean, it does help massively that Valtteri's uh, manager is, of course, Toto Wolff. I mean, that's uh, that's that smooths a lot of the contract negotiations out quite quickly. But um, you know, how many of these? I mean, Red Bull have two drivers that came through uh, their scheme. Um, you know, because everybody associates Sebastian Vettel with the Red Bull young driver scheme, but I believe he actually came through the BMW young driver program, yep. and uh, that all got a little bit messy when he, I think he's it didn't because Vettel subbed for Kubica after Kubica. he had his 2007 yeah, after,
3: US Grand Prix scored a and point, he
4: scored a point on his debut, didn't he? So and then Red Bull sort of Toro Rosso snapped him up pretty much straight away, didn't they? Um, yeah. So that you know is it as good as it seems? Is it good that you get involved in these organizations? Um, I don't know. Uh, I really don't know. And then do you end up diluting the fields? Because you end up with Red Bull and Toro Rosso, you know, Ferrari and Sauber, Um, you know, Mercedes and, and Force India have quite a close contact. Um, You know, that then just leaves sort of Renault, Williams and McLaren as the outline teams with nobody to work with. and, I don't know if it does dilute the teams or dilute the sport maybe because you end up with a, a, a platform of maybe 10 top-class drivers filling the top teams, and then almost like the rest of the field is like kindergarten. Um, I, I don't know if it's a good thing or not. It's, uh, it's an interesting question. I don't know what you guys think about that.
2: It's almost like college football where, where the top teams stockpile talent and you, you just recruit recruit four- and five-star talent, and you don't have anywhere to put them. you got tremendous depth, but you can't play everybody.
6: I think that we're really close to seeing the – and I don't know if – I'm not going to say it's going to be next year, obviously, but I think with the change in leadership of Liberty Media – I think we're probably within three to five years of seeing customer cars finally hit Formula One. Uh, I think that, and there's a lot of interest. Prima recently came out, a very high-end junior level team's recently come out and said they'd be interested if they went customer car racing. I know Michael Andretti has said a long time ago that if they ever went customer car racing uh, in Formula One, that he would definitely be interested. So, you know, the interest for customer cars to be there, and that would just continue to be, you could argue that that's kind of what, what, led to, to Haas happening. I mean, in a way it's customer car, but it's just a different label. You know, TAG Heuer can can put their badge on a motor, but it's not a TAG Heuer motor. We all know that. We all know that. So at the end of the day, it's just about it was about money to kind of dictate the classification of customer cars, but I think that we're very close to seeing that actually be a thing, especially when you look at the car count that's in F1 right now. That's something that I think we have a lot of good drivers that are that isn't in f1 and I think that that would certainly enhance the product if customer cars became something that came to the forefront
4: it's a difficult it is, it's a difficult way of looking at it and I think um, you know the, the talk and um, remember uh, back at one of the preseason tests when Ross Braun was announced as coming on in the technical side of the Liberty setup he was talking about uh, and I, I've seen it firsthand some of the work that goes into components and parts that the fans never see, and in reality don't make any difference whatsoever to the performance of the car. You know, it's huge, huge waste of resources goes into silly little components in the car that nobody sees. But there's a very, very fine balance there. You can't water it down so much that the manufacturers, the marquee names that people associate with Formula 1 and you know, the self-proclaimed premium motorsport series in the world. Um, you, you can't detract from them. You, you, you need the manufacturers in. I mean, in an ideal world, I guess you'd have 10 independent teams that are all owned or managed by the leading 10 car manufacturers in the world and with drivers from all over the world. And I'm, I'm sure that's the, that, that's the ultimate goal, isn't it? But it's how you get there and how you can encourage the likes of Toyota to come back into the t- into the sport, BMW, and for the sake of the championship, a US manufacturer, whether it be Ford or Chevy or one of these manufacturers, to come back in um, and, and, and be involved. But if they're just buying parts off the shelf, they've got to look at how they distinguish what they do compared to the other teams. And you see it probably more in Europe the likes of Mercedes advertising and when Renault were winning championships with Fernando Alonso, they actually produced a, a Renault Clio F1 championship winning car. Um, you know, th- there needs to be that marketing tool. There needs to be a reward for them pumping in three, four, $500 million a year into the sport.
1: You know, I don't know. It's like gray, gray is probably the only one on the panel old enough to remember. Um, but uh, you, know, you, know, you know, back back in the '70s and '80s, uh, you know, Formula One was more of a chassis constructors' sport rather than a engine manufacturer sport. You know, cause you had you had a couple of engine manufacturers in there. You had your Ferrari, Alpha, uh, Renault getting into the game, bring, introducing the turbo to the scene. But everyone else ran a standard Cosworth um yeah. and they worked on their chassis design you know and that's where you, your lotus your williams your uh, maybe your Lige was running the cosworth before they aligned with matra and you'd have these seasons where you'd have uh like 82 you had was was 11 12 different winners no yeah, you had no, Bra- you had Bra uh, the, Br- the bram was one of the cosworth you know until they till till they Went switched to, BMW. to alpha well, they had Alpha, then they went to BMW. Yeah, but <laughs> but it was more about the chassis design than the than the any manufacturer. And the Any manufacturer supplied just the you know just the engine and and
4: it's a very very recent thing. I mean, you, you go back yeah, to the '60s, yeah, and absolutely, '70s. Yeah, I mean, of course, you've had Ferrari, have been the classic one. But I mean, when did Renault come in as their own manager? They bought Benetton in what 2002, 2003. Well, no, Rena- yeah.
1: Rena- um, Renault first came in in '78.
4: Yeah, but I'm uh, sorry, yes. As, as re re you know, of the modern era where you look at the manufacturers who are an engine and a chassis manufacturer, you know, you've always had Ferrari, and then it's really been the last 15 years where it started to take off. And you saw Mercedes come in in 2010, um, you know, Honda and McLaren are becoming very, very closely aligned. Um, you know, obviously, you've got Renault sort of came and then went and then they've come back a little bit, uh, Toyota did that for a while. Uh, BMW did that was when they invested heavily and you know pretty much bought Sauber out. But then the problem is they they come and go so quickly because they've all got shareholders and committee meetings. And the, my understanding of the situation is that when um, Honda pulled out of Formula One uh, in 2008, back in 2008, this was all decided in about half an hour. They had a committee meeting of the board of directors and the shareholders of Honda in Japan. Uh, it was around the time of the, the financial crash and they were looking through the books and they saw $300 million a year going to a Formula 1 team that hadn't been massively successful um, and they sh- had a show of hands and decided to close the team. Um, you know, that's the danger of having these teams involved because they can come and go at the drop of a hat. You know, The likes of the Williams and the Sauber's they're the guys that stick around, so you, I think Formula One's got to be careful what they wish for, and uh, hopefully Liberty won't pursue. Um, you know, the teams that come and go—they they need some commitment. I, yeah. I'll
6: argue this. I'll argue this, though, is that if we had a situation of customer cars, at least some of those employees that lost their jobs would have a place to possibly go.
3: Let's also not forget that when Honda left the next year, what happens? The team wins. Go figure. Well,
4: Honda Honda paid for that year. The, t- the year when Braun won the championship, that was funded by Honda because it was cheaper for Honda to fund the team for a year and find a buyer than it was for them to shut everything down and pay a compensation to all the uh, staff and, and, you know, all the penalties to the FIA because they signed up, you know, on long-term agreements and it was too late in the season to sell. So that whole Braun project, even though they ran a different engine to the Honda engine, was actually paid for by Honda. Which is a very very strange situation, um, and as you mentioned, getting rid of people, they the Braun organisation as a team went out to Australia and dominated the race. Jensen Button won there at a, at a sort of seventy percent uh, capacity, and then on the Monday, whenever, when Nick Fry and all the senior management and Ross Braun got back to the, uh, the, the the factory in the UK, laid off a third of the staff the very next day, which is a pretty brutal way of doing it. But unfortunately, that's the nature of the sport.
6: I think uh, the, the last, because I know we can't go on forever for the rest of the night, but I, my last note here to make sure we cover all our bases is, uh, you know, Toro Rosso, we, we alluded to them. Uh, James Key, uh, their technical guy over there, uh, has has kind of extended his deal with them. Honda is desperate to get a second team. You know, we talked about uh, Sauber, Manisha Keltenborn, a former team principal. Sauber was trying to do something with Honda. Those fell apart uh, shortly after she was departed, and, uh, you know, they've fallen apart again, Honda's talks, with uh, Toro Rosso this time. So, any chance Honda has of a second team uh, for next year is looking very, very slim. I uh,
4: uh, Sorry, on that point, very quickly, not, don't want to interrupt there, but I think, and I may be right, you may me know a bit more about this, but this year could be Williams' last year with Mercedes. I don't know if their contract is up for renewal or has been renewed or, or whatever it may be, but... Um, it wouldn't surprise me if if um, Honda didn't talk to Williams, and again, it wouldn't surprise me even further down the line if McLaren did decide to leave Honda. That then Honda transferred across to Williams to become uh, the main main and um, sort of Williams become the main Honda team.
6: Yeah, I mean, it's smart of them to try to go after kind of a the, the privateer squad, and and something like Williams makes sense. And with somebody like Felipe Massa recently declaring, "I'm good to go another year," um, <laughs> getting a chance to develop that car with somebody that has that kind of experience would definitely be smart. Um, the other thing is, is with some WEC teams deciding to, to change things, uh, we look at uh, Mercedes focusing a little bit more on their F1 and now Formula E efforts. If you look at Porsche focusing on their, their Formula E efforts and, and kind of – Taking themselves out of whack, which is hugely unfortunate, because sports car racing is so critical for like the future of what we do with our everyday cars. But um, I think that well, there's a lot of talk. Hey, Joey,
0: so is Formula E. Yeah. I, I, I think
1: Formula E is more critical to the future what we do with our on road cars than uh, than than a sports car racing or indie car racing or anything. And, and I think that um, you know this is this is going to be the wave of the future. That's why Formula E, even though nobody watches it and the races are crazy where you have to hop out of your car into another one, uh, the manufacturer interest in that series is at an all-time high compared to uh, getting into Formula One or getting into WEC or getting into uh, IMSA or or IndyCar or NASCAR. Uh, Electric cars are going to be the wave of the future. They should have been 40 years ago, um, but they weren't. So, uh, it's, uh, you know, formally as kind of nondescript as it is to watch, um, look at the manufacturer interest in that series. I I gather, but
6: I'm saying that they were in an LMP one team and LMP one, especially when you look at the, the 24 hour Le Mans, which is historically the biggest race in the world, um, you know, there's a lot of influence there with the hybrid systems and everything else going on, and, and converting. You know, let's be honest, there's a way to convert a series like WEC to, to run in, in a more electrical fashion, uh, you know, electrical power, whatever. I'm not saying that Formula e is not important, but I just think that now we're really hurting the 24 hour Mans with the pull out of that. But where I was going with it was that there is talk that Porsche has a lot of high interest and has kept a lot of their WEC employees to maybe pursue a Formula One opportunity in 2021 whenever the new engine regs and everything else changes over. They're one of a number of teams or a number of manufacturers that have some interest in bringing maybe a a new motor to the sport.
1: That would be awesome. Yeah. I'd love to see a few more manufacturers involved uh, over there, but uh, guys, we are like way out of time. We're only 26 minutes over time. So we're, we're, 16 green-white So, But uh, before we do, Formula One is in action this weekend at Spa. Spa, one of the fantastic, classic courses um, where traditionally you get a wet race uh, the time of year they're sailed. So uh, who do you guys like for Spa? Let's go around and make some picks for Spa before we sign off for the night. I'm going to start with you, Richard.
4: Uh, well, I've just... Uh, I, uh Quick check of the weather forecast, and there's an eighty percent chance of rain on Sunday, which is fantastic. Um, I'm going to go for Max Verstappen.
1: Okay, all right. Uh, Gray, you got a pick for Spa?
4: Botas. Botas, good pick. Uh,
6: Joey, I think it's going to be a Finn, but uh, it, either one. But since my since is already taken, I guess I'll take Kimi.
1: All right, Seth
5: uh i'll go with daniel ricardo
1: all right and chris vettel well no nobody took hamilton so i'll just go ahead and say <laughs> hamilton so yeah, i thought I, you
6: were I, maybe gonna take a force india car
4: or a williams there for a second and forget that <laughs> hamilton was still on the board
1: i mean hamilton's still on the board might as well you know, snap that up you know it's like <laughs> i hope
4: uh, I hope hamilton doesn't listen to the show because he'll be uh He'll, he'll be Silkin if he does. Right. Yes, yeah, he'll be. He'll, he'll, yeah, he'll be a little bloodhurt. So,
0: but uh, well,
6: we have a better chance since we have you know uh, the iHeart thing going on now. Yeah,
1: yeah, so, yeah. Deals, so. but, but anyway, guys, we are like way out of time. I want to thank you, Richard Gray, Joey, Chris, Seth. I want to thank all the listeners. I want to thank UbaZoo Radio Network. This is Drafting the Circus. My name is Frank Santorowski Enjoy the races next week. We'll talk to you in a week. Good
2: night.